Hey everybody, this is David Barry. You're listening to Municipal's presentation of Becoming Better Men. This week on the podcast, I talk with friend and fellow leadership development executive, Tim Russell. The big idea I take away from this conversation is a reminder of the reciprocity of disclosure, the truth that sits at the core of every dynamic and lasting relationship. When we have the courage to share ourselves in real ways, especially with our colleagues, we create conditions for others to do the same. And in doing that, we're reminded that regardless of role or title or appearance, we are all, as Harry Stack Sullivan once remarked, more human than otherwise. My guess is that after listening to Tim talk about the origin stories of his core values, you're going to be inclined to do some of that work for yourself. And you might even decide to make your values the lead feature of your LinkedIn profile, a choice that Tim makes to send a clear and compelling message about the forces that guide his life. Finally, before you get yourself convinced that Tim's somebody who's got it all figured out, you need to know that the through line of this conversation is his 10 years of sobriety and his resolve to apply his values in service of both his family and his community. After all, what better place to start than right where you live? As we cautiously and hopefully emerge from the shadow of the pandemic, this affirming conversation about personal recovery and humility is exactly what I need right now, and I trust that you will be grateful for it as well. I hope it inspires you to take stock of what matters most as you continue to become the best possible version of yourself. Enjoy. Well, I think we ought to just roll on in. So, so okay. I'll, do my, I'll do my, hey, Tim Russell, thank you so much <laughs> for joining me on Becoming Better Men. It's awesome to have you here. I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you. I've been looking forward to it. You know, um, uh, me too. And what's really cool about this experience over the last six or so months of, of recording the podcast and and thinking about becoming better men and having it come initially from a really dark place at the beginning of the <laughs> pandemic. And now it's really come to, it's really, it's really evolved to a more joyful place. And it's been a chance to reconnect with people I really admire. And you and I hadn't talked in a long time and we reconnected last month and it was, it was a profound conversation for me. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a very important time because as you know, our family had, had um, decamped from SoCal up into up right. to the Oregon coast and 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 um, took a few weeks just to be in a new location while we still had remote school and work and all of that and then you and I connected in the middle of the na- uh, in the middle of that time and I just um, and, and this um, this is a an outgrowth of that and so I'm just loving how how this happens. Me too, Dave. I, I tell you, I'm I'm still feeding from the energy of that call and that was yeah. a, at least a few weeks ago now. Uh, thrilled to be with you. Yeah, great, great. And and so, so you know, the other thing, Tim, that, that got me excited about talking to you is is uh, people prepare for these conversations in very different ways, and and, <laughs> and and all of it works. You know, it can all work. But you know, you just sent me responses to to uh, some questions I posed in a little bit of a setup, and and uh, and I just I feel grateful to you how thoughtfully you, you thought about this but w- one thing that stood out kind of right in the middle of the page and this is not typically where I start but I want to start mm. here because it resonated you make a point 
of saying that you, A, have a very clear value system mm. and that there are three values that you hold as most important to you. But you went on to say that, that those are front and center on your LinkedIn profile, that you, mm-hmm. you advertise them, if you will, because it's something about that's important to you. So first of all, why do you do that? Why does it matter to you to have them front and center? And then tell us, you know, tell, tell us about what are they and, and, and how did they come to be for you? Such a good question. Um, and what a fascinating thing that of, of my responses, that was the one that you zeroed in on because it's one of my favorites as well. Uh, Early in my career, I worked at Microsoft and we were creating Microsoft's very first executive leadership program. It was called the Bench Program. And we hired this external company to come in and help us. And they did, I met met a couple of um, men that since became my mentors, uh, Boyd Clark and Ron Crossland, uh, with a company called Blue Points Leadership Developments. And Boyd, um, who sadly, tragically, is no longer with us, he lost a battle to cancer several years ago, um, became this pivotal figure to me when I was working my way up from the mailroom. I mean, literally, I was a coordinator at Microsoft. I had designs to be on stage rather than to be you know, behind the curtain. And I watched him do his thing and learned from... Uh, his ways. And he, he did this exercise with the senior leaders at Microsoft. It was so simple, but so elegant. It was a values card sort. And he gave all these leaders a deck of cards. And there were probably, I would, I don't know, maybe a hundred words on them. Words like wealth, health, faith, beauty, you know, all, all the different values, uh, characteristics, and traits you can you can think of as like the stereotypical things that would be on a deck of cards like that. And he had these leaders try to sort through the cards and pick the five that were most important to them. And at the time, it was because um, Microsoft was going through this um, really interesting period where they were introducing new corporate values. Bill Gates was about to retire, and the company was, was sort of going through this awesome transition, getting ready for Steve Ballmer to take over. And they, they were, I, I don't know, for maybe lack of a better way to put it, they were searching for a, a evolved identity. Yeah. And it began at the individual level with these leaders identifying the values. And what, what I learned from Boyd as he did this values card sort is that if we as people, we as leaders don't understand our values as our North Star, as our decision-making criteria, as our prioritization roadmap, then we're lost. And I, wa- I literally watched these, I, I'm, I'm not being dramatic, I watched senior leaders break down in tears mm. as they did this exercise, realizing either A, that they were very clear about their values as a decision-making criteria North Star, or B, they were living an inauthentic life because they had cards in front of them that looked no way or shape like who they were. Right. You know, they, they realized they had a mask on. Uh, so anyway, long story short, I realized then uh, values clarification was paramount. And I've done it many times over the years. I, I suspect my values now, if I had that deck of cards, may be different than what my values would have been then. Maybe. Um, 
but pretty clear about what they are today. And you, you asked, uh, I'll pause. I've been speaking for a long time. Oh, I love uh, that. Thank you for, thank you for boldly punctuating something that um, is so central to many of the conversations we have on the podcast and certainly in my personal, in my personal life and experience. Um, there's a rootedness that comes from values. I've always thought of it like, um, you know, the oak tree, um, there's a stability that comes like you, you're going to sway in life and you're going to get blown around a lot. <laughs> mm. And, 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 but, but I believe it's a value system among other things, but a core value system, it provides you a stability that keeps you, keeps the roots below the soil where they need to be so that as you're tossed around, you don't completely lose your footing. And, um, and so like you, uh, uh, I have mine. I have mine front and center on LinkedIn as well as other places. So, so tell us what those are, and yep. um, and and a little bit about how you landed on those three. Yeah, for sure. So, my values are honesty, and these these are these are purpose purposefully placed in order of significance for me. Honesty is first, family is second, and learning is third. And they they are they are so significant to me they're almost like my name i mean if if i were um you know if i were able without seeming awkward to introduce myself by saying hi you know my name is tim and here are my values i would do that that's how important they are to me um i'll, I'll tell you the first two actually the, all three of them really are are front and center to me, most likely because I've learned from the mistakes I've made in my life. And because of that, they've risen in importance. I, I've, I've led a dishonest life at times. I've, I've not prioritized family at times. I have definitely uh, not put myself into a position to learn at times. And I realize those are the moments in my life that are the least productive and, and the moments that I'm least proud of. Um, so I'll start with honesty. Uh, and this, this actually will, will most likely be a thread that I will pull through our conversation today, Dave. Um, I, I am a recovering alcoholic, uh, 10 years sober this January. And one of the things that I've learned in alcoholic recovery is the significance of honesty. Mm. Honesty with myself, honesty with the people I love, honesty with the way I live my life, the relationships I have. Because uh, when I was um, falling down and hitting rock bottom, I was, I was not being honest. I, I was living um, a lie, again, to myself and to other people. And I could go on and on. We, we, if we wanted to spend the entire podcast on this particular value, I'd probably be able to fill up that time pretty easily. But that gives you some context for that value. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Keep it. Keep it. Keep it going. Let's um, keep it rolling. All right. So family. Yeah. Let's time yeah, it up. Yeah. Family is, I think, probably two pronged. I. I think family is important. I don't think. I know family is important for, for uh, two reasons. One, going back to my early childhood, my mother and my sister were significant uh, to me in terms of shaping my life. Uh, they, were, they were pivotal characters in my story. My mom, you know, classic single mom, because my father also unfortunately suffer, suffers from the disease, uh, alcoholic, uh, left us at an early age. My mom raised us as a single mom. 
I just I admire and respect her because she she helped shape my early understanding of fa- family. The second the second prong the second tier is that having made some mistakes uh, with my own family. I'm a father of two children. Have a, a, a beautiful wife. Um, we're, we're coming up on 18 years um, marriage this November. Uh, just blew it with my own family for many years, and luckily. I don't know how I was lucky enough that that uh, I was able to salvage the the marriage and and the kids and uh, make some choices about changing. Yes. On the back end of uh, you know my rock bottom, even though the momentum of of alcoholism sort of follows you into sobriety for several years, luckily we got back to a happy place and now there's laughter and romance and intimacy and and all the fun stuff of of marriage and and, and parenthood. And I cherish it, Dave. Yeah. I, I don't take one moment for granted now because I almost lost it all. Right. You know, it almost brings a tear to my eye now thinking how lucky I am right. almost having lost my own family. You know that story doesn't it, it, it ends very differently from very from many people in that in that same kind of situation. I, I hear it all the time. Yeah. Uh, as a right to the edge. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, learning to to um, finish it off. So I'm in the business of learning. My my career, my profession is is um, in human resources. I help organizations um, and teams and individuals um, grow. So I I am a passionate um, practitioner of learning and development. But likewise, learning is important to me as a value because. It has meant um, that I, I, you know, learning about myself has enabled my uh, evolution. And, you know, I know one of your questions that you sent to me that I'm anticipating you ask is something about my definition of masculinity. And Mm -hmm. as I pondered that question, um, a lot of it has to do with learning about myself and and self-awareness and the courage to dive into the dark places, the fear, um, the uncertainty, the shame in order to learn from it, uh, to come out the other side, uh, happier, wiser, more self-aware. Yes. What I want to underline is that for anybody listening to this, you know, a card sort or any kind of values clarification exercise is, is, is great. But if you do that absent your personal stories, you're mm. not really you're not doing it. <laughs> well, yeah, well said. Yeah, yeah. You're you're you know we are so shaped by these incredible experiences of life, good and bad, hard and beautiful. You know all of it. What I'm curious about, just to stay with values for a second, is ten prior to getting sober, mm-hmm. were your values different then? Hmm. Are they what they are now because of having done that? What is that? Yes. For you? Yeah, it's an interesting question because um, I know, I know, like you did, like you're probably certified in all these psychometric tools, like <laughs> I am, like Myers Briggs and you know Thomas Kilman and DISC and all that. And I, I do maintain in a lot of ways that we are who we are, like the whole na- nature versus nurture thing. Like we kind of are who we are um, innately. And maybe, maybe, maybe my values were were similar um, as a younger person. However, I can say, 
I think they were they were different to a degree. I, I think achievement would have would have most likely been high on my list of values earlier in my life. Um, I was very driven to essentially right the wrongs of my father. And you know, you know, when we get to the question about masculinity, like I, I've got a doozy for you there. Like basically, it's it's you know to become the opposite of my dad. And uh, achievement was a huge driver for me. And that, and that was you know it was all based on on like the societal definition of achievement, you know, material wealth and, and notoriety and, yeah. um, ego, yeah. um, winning. I even went, yeah, winning exactly. Making the most money, having the biggest house. Uh, not ironically, my rock bottom was very much tied to when I had achieved most of what I had defined as, you know, success measures and once I had achieved them, freaking out and, and, and not knowing what to do next because I had, quote, won. Yep. Family and learning might have been in there, but certainly like less evolved, less, less understood to me because I needed the life experience to understand. They needed to take on a little patina. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> well hard said. earned. Hard earned. Well, let's let's talk about let's talk about masculinity a, a little bit. Did, did you have some time with your dad? I know he took off when you were young, but did you have some some early exposure to him? I did. I did. And actually, I choose these days. I choose to to reflect upon my relationship with him and who he is with fondness. I've 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 come to forgive him in my heart and head. And, uh, yeah, he, he was, he was still living in our home until I was about 11. However, really absent until then, you know, I, I think probably the, the best memories of dad stop at around seven Mm -hmm. and there, my memories of him are like family vacations, summertime, uh, he was actually a big kid, so he was a great dad to kids. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Uh, not a great male role model um, in terms of you know developing a young man, but um, when, I found this, fun memories. When you set out to cut to write to tell a different story to right those wrongs in your own life, what was the <laughs> what what were you writing? What were you going to do differently that that you you thought you needed to? I just had in my head at that early age and probably into my early 20s that a man's job, a, a father's job was to provide, uh, was to be a husband, was to be a father. Um, he didn't provide. My, my mom worked three jobs. Um, he left for long stretches of time. He was very irresponsible with the family's money, you know, put us into a really bad spot. Like I can remember yeah. our heat being turned off at times. I can remember having to get ready. It's we, I grew up in Seattle, so not super cold winters, but cold enough that in the morning when you're getting ready for school, you want some heat. And I can remember my mom actually turning on the stove in our kitchen mm-hmm. and us using um, the stove's heat to get dressed because uh, he didn't have hot water or anything like, like that. It was, it was crazy. And I blamed him for that. I, I had a lot of resentment um, towards my dad for not providing, for not being quote, you know, the man of the house. Hey guys, it's Anna here, the customer service specialist at Municipal. 
I'm here to tell you that we just launched our Super Blend Pocket T-shirt and Long Sleeve T-shirt. They are seriously softer than my Golden Retriever puppy, so be sure to check them out at municipal.com. And as a bonus for not fast-forwarding through this commercial, use promo code BBM30 at checkout and you'll receive 30% off your entire order. If you ever need help with sizing or anything else, be sure to hit me up at hello at municipal.com. Now, back to David. So we're shaped by the bad and, and the good. Um, some good, some good. Yeah. And, and, and so you have some other men you think about who, who maybe in place of your dad or certainly additive to, to that father figure role. Who were those, who were those men for you? And and what were the, some Mm. of the lessons that you learned? Yeah. Luckily I was scooped up by a lot of really great men, um, because they knew what was going on. So my grandfather, Mm -hmm. uh, super important to me. His name is Virgil. Virgil Lee Williams, World War II vet, um, just sort of classic greatest generation type, not ironically a spinning image of me. I found this picture of him in my my mom's um, uh, shoebox of photos when I was in like my 20s. And for a moment, I did a double take because I thought it was a picture of me. Like we were, we were spinning images of each other. Uh, likewise, my son looks very much like us, but I digress. He, he was just this um, really solid guy and similarly driven by his values. I, I'm, I'm quite certain if he were here, he would probably tell you that family was one of his values. Yep. He, he did not demonstrate um, a very effusive emotion of like love. He wasn't a praiseworthy guy. He wasn't a, a guy that told you, I love you, but you but he demonstrated his, his love for you in different ways. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite things about my grandfather, on special occasions, he would give his grandchildren silver dollars and he wouldn't make a big deal of it. He just, he kind of palm it to you in a, in a handshake. Yeah, right. And he, he wouldn't say very many words, um, but you would know that was his, I love you, I'm proud of you. Still, still have those, they're among my prized possessions. Yeah. Beautiful. My uh, my best friend's father, a guy named Neil Hansen, was also huge to me, probably because so I you know I didn't necessarily quote live on the other side of the tracks, but my mom um, did work those three jobs to to send us to a private Catholic school, which was really important to her, and it was a pretty affluent school. And so I was surrounded by a lot of kids that had more than I did. Yep. Um, I can remember. So it was, a, it was a school that we had uniforms and I had one shirt and one pair of pants that my mom would wash every night um, because she couldn't afford, you know, anything more. And I was wearing like the Izod version of the white polo, as opposed to like my friends wearing the Ralph Lauren. And like there, there were, there were a lot of yes. indicators to me of my, my status. Yes. And one of the one of my actually my best friend the best man at my wedding came from one of those affluent homes and i would say when things were bad for me as a kid i was over at their house almost every day after school and and they sort of adopted me and i watched i studied uh this man this father carefully because he was a businessman he he fit all the criteria i had at that age of what a 
of what a masculine, you know, patriarch type was, provided for his family, got up early, went to work, wore the suit, you know, said grace at dinner, like all, all the manly stuff. Yeah. Uh, taught me how to water ski, like, you know, just taught me things that a dad teaches a son that I didn't have in my own home. Uh, still, still reach out to him on Father's Day. And there was also a janitor. <laughs> yes, the janitor. Oh my gosh! So my first job when I was a teenager uh, was working, no lie, as a janitor's assistant at my elementary school. The guy named Ken Andrews, just super, super gruff guy, Vietnam vet. I think you know. I think I was like 15 at the time. Every time we would go on break, he'd ask me if I wanted a beer, and and that was his joke for apple juice. <laughs> and um, the reason I, I I indicated him as an important figure, uh, masculine figure or male figure in my life, was because of the way he taught. And actually, I still use this to this day as a manager of people and in what I teach leaders and how I coach people. A big part of that job over the summertime was was painting. We painted a lot of classrooms, painted the hallways of the of the school, that sort of thing. And Ken, Ken Andrews had this style where he would paint alongside me for a few minutes and teach me one thing. Mm. I'll give you an example. This is a classic. I, I'm actually a super accomplished painter because of Ken Andrews. I, I think I could probably put professional painter on my resume and not be too far off. And here, here's one of the things he taught me. It's classic. People do this all the time. When they dip their paintbrush into a bucket, a lot of times, because they don't want the paint to drip, they scrape all the paint off the brush. And when you apply it to the wall, there's no paint in the brush. So rather, when you dip your brush in the bucket, you're supposed to dab the sides to sort of keep the paint on the brush, but get off any of the drips. So that that might be an example of something that he would teach me. One little thing, he'd stand next to me for a couple of minutes, then he'd leave. And for all I know, he was going to put his feet up on the desk somewhere, but um, he would leave me for almost the entire day, almost like Mr. Miyagi yes. from uh, the Karate, Karate Kid. Yes, yes. T totally, totally. Yeah. And then he would come back every once in a while, give me one little piece of feedback, and then leave. And it was the most empowering experience to get some education. He would set expectations. He would come back. He would give me some feedback. I would course correct, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. I, 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 it was I felt autonomous. I felt empowered. Uh, I was learning something. Um, it was kind of like, uh, have you read uh, David, uh, or uh, sorry, Dan Pink's book, Drive? It's a great book on employee engagement, oh, and yes, he, yes. Esen he essentially talks about the three drivers of employee engagement yes. being people want purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And I learned that from Ken Andrews. He, I had purpose, which was to paint. He gave me autonomy, and he taught me how to be a master painter. Not to put too fine a point on it, but how did that play forward in your life? I mean, can you look at how you've mm. taken on other responsibilities that maybe your approach to them was shaped by his approach to teaching you how to paint? I can. And actually, I'll, I'll, um, one common element among those three men that I, I have yet to mention that, that answers your question right now, like what have I learned from those three and what is my approach today? All three of them cared about me. 
And in addition to everything I've already communicated about each man, I remember the time each of those men took to ask me questions about myself and sincerely care and listen. And as a kid, that's a big deal. I didn't have that, for, certainly not for my own father. But as a kid, you know, you don't get that a lot from adults. And each of these men gave me that attention. Um, I, I, I can remember, you know, I, I'm joke, joked around how Ken Andrews used to say, you want to go have a beer. Um, and we would have apple juice together. We were literally in like the boiler room of this school right. at his desk. And he was communicating with me on equal level and asking me questions about my life and sharing things about his life. I have definitely taken that with me. I, I think a big part of who I am as a person and as a leader, especially of teams, is to care about the individual and to take the time with someone above and beyond, you know, whatever job we have to do together. What do you think? I, I got that from Ken. What do you think gets in the way of leaders doing that same thing? Well, there's certainly the old adage of separating, you know, work and life. I've struggled with it myself. I've actually gotten to a point and it's bitten me in the butt a couple of times. Uh, I've gotten to a point in my life and, and this is the way I, I tend to lead my teams these days to, to communicate with people um, a preference not to, not to have that line, uh, to, to be open to the gray space in between uh, that we can care for each other as people in addition to being colleagues. And I think that's one thing that gets in the way. Uh, I think some leaders draw a very fine line and I can see why they do it. To be honest, um, there have been times, especially in my life, like if I'm managing a poor performer and that person is a friend, it's so hard, but it's worked for me up to this point. Um, that's, that's one thing. I think maybe another thing is maybe just if we're strictly speaking of men, perhaps stereotypical and unfair to men, but I think men have a harder time uh, being in touch with emotions and having the words to interpersonally interact with, uh, especially someone at work in a caring way. Total, like it's a stereotype that I I hate that I've even said, um, but maybe there's a, a truth to it. Well, I just think we have to reflect on our own experience, you know, and, and, you know, if, if, if there's a kernel of truth in that, in, in people's own experience, then it's true for them. Um, mm, and, that. and stereotypes exist for a reason, um, mm. you know, whether it's because of a lack of fluency in the language of emotion, which would lead to, you know, feeling like you're not going to do it right. I mean, now we see this in the diversity, equity, and inclusion kinds of conversations. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. The last podcast conversations I have is about like men, uh, white men especially, don't enter into those for fear of doing it wrong so often. Right. So their heart right. might be in the right place, but they're not willing to step in because because I'm going to screw this up. So you know, right. could be a competency gap. Um, I also think I also think we're measured on results so much that it's mm. too easy to stay in that black and white of we either did it or we didn't do it domain and the rest of it needs to stay out of here because we don't have time or space for that, which as you and I, I think know and believe 
that doesn't that doesn't hold up at all, but it's an easy trap to set for ourselves. Oh my goodness. And and haven't we learned as a result of this pandemic that we've been living for so long the significance of relationships to enable productivity when we can't be face to face, you know, grinding out the work. And and especially based on the emotional toll people have experienced. If the foundation of a relationship is built on the trust that exists, you know, uh, following the interpersonal connection that a leader chooses to foster, uh, I I think that uh, the relationships have been easier to manage during the pandemic, or at least honor. You know, I talk about I talk about the vision of my personal work to to help make you know that that essentially human beings deserve a more human workplace and and a mm-hmm. more human workplace is one where we can bring our full selves to the conversation, our full selves to the work, and <laughs> be received there with empathy and support and encouragement um, and a lot of gratitude. Um, that's a we're, we're we're closer to that in many many ways, and we're still a long way from from that being the case. Um, something I hope we make a lot of progress in in my life, if not for us, for our kids, you know, to go to workplaces where they're just totally accepted and encouraged to bring all of it. It does seem to be a thing right now, doesn't it? Uh, and especially you mentioned the diversity, equity, and inclusion um, focus right now. Um, and especially that inclusivity piece, if we can't be our full selves, then it's pretty tough to be inclusive and welcoming. It's part of why, you know, I've, I've already told my story of alcoholic recovery. Um, I didn't share that piece of myself at work for a really long time. And when I did decide to do that, it was amazing what happened. The, the, a, a door was opened in terms of not only my connection and trust with the people I worked with, but likewise, my own productivity, because I felt like I could be myself. I felt like people saw me. And now I make it a point, um, you know, I don't, I don't shout it from the rooftops, but if in context it's appropriate to share, I make it a point to communicate my truth. Because let's play this out a little bit, because in yep. the absence of that being known, mm-hmm. what is it, what story do you think people are telling about you? Such a good question. And I'll give you um, a, a very tangible example. When I first started working for Slalom Consulting, I was reporting to the president of the organization, a guy named John Tobin. Um, also, by the way, one of the uh, significant male influences in my life. And I've already communicated my value of family. Well, I was the, I, I was the coach of the soccer team, one of my kids' soccer teams, and I needed to leave. I chose to leave early a couple of days a week to go coach the soccer team. And I think one of the stories people told about me, this, is, this, this may just be the story I tell myself, but I think, I think there's some truth to it, sure. was that this guy's a slacker. He's, he's taken off early. He's not committed to the organization. Um, you know, what's going on? As soon as I told John, my boss, my story, hey, John, recovering alcoholic, I've done a lot of work to 
get back to a place with my family where I can be a father and a husband. And as a result, family is one of my huge values, which is why I leave early to go coach the soccer team. It, it was almost as if the light bulb went on for us that, or, or the door was unlocked, like mixing metaphors, yeah. um, that, that enabled our professional and our personal friendship to thrive. Yeah. Uh, instantly, John shared that he was also the soccer coach of his children's teams, <laughs> um, that he totally respected. You know, he was appreciative. I was, I was honest with him. He's like, of course, do your thing. I made the agreement with him that after practice, I would, you know, pick up any slack that may have, you know, right. that, you know, happened as a result of me leaving early. Right, right. But uh, the truth set me free. Yeah. And it was unbelievable. I, I don't know what I was afraid of. I, I, it took me a while to, to tell that story. And as soon as I did, I was like, duh, <laughs> why didn't I do this sooner? Sure. That's great. I, I also, I also um, think you and I share a, maybe, you know, <laughs> let's call it a default tendency. Now, I'll let you speak for your own experience, of course, <laughs> um, to put up a front or a facade oh, of, big time. of having our shit together. Big time. Yeah. The masks we wear. Man. Yeah. My default in insecure moments is to look like I own the place. I mean, I go all the way, <laughs> you know, I go all the way to like, any any in any perception of me as like not being in control or vulnerable, I I so boldly cross over to the other side of like, no man, this is I got it, I got it all figured out. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. You can speak for me on this. Yeah, you you were kind to say you let me speak from my own experience, but it sounds like you could speak for me. Um, I still wrestle with it, Dave. You know, to be honest, for everything from what I wear to what I say. I'm still aware of it. And I, I, gosh, I wish that wasn't the case. Um, and it is about control. I, actually, um, one, of, one of my pivotal moments early in alcoholic recovery was my, my realization that part of the reason I drank was because I was holding on so tightly mm. that I needed alcohol as a, a numbing agent because I was... I felt so out of control because I was trying to control it all, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I remember this, this really um, smart guy, a couple of chairs away from me in an AA meeting saying something to the effect of we've got to surrender. Mm -hmm. And if you think, if you think about the origin of the term surrender, and if you liken it to the context of war, when you surrender, Essentially, what you are doing, you are literally choosing to live, right? I surrender. I put up the white flag. I choose to live. And what I heard as he was describing surrender, and he was he was using it in the context of surrender the need for control, surrender the need to be perfect, surrender the need to know everything. Just accept that you can't control any of it. You'll choose to live, and. I'll never forget that moment. It was actually, it was six months into my recovery and it was the moment I chose to be sober. I, you know, even six months into it, even though I wasn't putting alcohol in my body, I wasn't really sober. It was that moment that I became sober. Yeah. Surrender to not having to right the wrongs of your 
father's past or yeah you, you got it or be the perfect man be the perfect yeah. husband be the perfect friend uh, I, I will say though you know here's something interesting though dave like part of me even still worries you, you asked me what my values were earlier in life and i i told you that achievement might have been one of them i i still worry to a degree that by surrendering i'm losing a little bit of the fire and the motivation to like get me somewhere you know get me to the next great job or get me all the money or get me the fortune and fame even though i'd like to think that i'm evolved and and i've like you know well, i've got this but let's let's play with that for a second because i i think that's yeah. a really wonderful challenging area to 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 look at like are you really giving up that fire or are yeah, you um, are you repurposing it in a in a in a different way that works for you now the, the latter, the latter. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll frame it in this way. Any, anyone connected to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous knows the phrase, the cliche, one day at a time. And early in sobriety, at moments, I wasn't even living one day at a time. I was leaving, living one hour at a time, just, just trying to be present and focused on getting through the next hour. Yeah. And if you, if you are living one hour or one day at a time, actually, I'll, I'll, speak, I'll speak as myself. Um, when I was living one day at a time, I wasn't giving myself permission to look very far forward. You know, I wasn't thinking about my career a year or two or three years down the line. I wasn't thinking about my next step professionally because i was literally living one day at a time just trying to be sober trying to trying to save my marriage save my job save my life enough time has gone by now that i've given myself permission to look forward but there's a fear connected to it like what you know the risk associated with not living in the present, not living moment to moment, because that's what saved my life. Right. So there's there's sort of this like I've had to reconcile what achievement looks like in context of my sobriety in that way. Hmm. I will say though, um, like all things, time heals, yeah. and one of the one of the most important elements of my recovery is talking about it. Right now, this is a perfect example. I am so happy and proud of the fact that at some point this podcast is going to be published and anyone that knows me will be able to listen to it and they will have greater understanding of who I am having heard my words. That, that is a liberating experience. Pr previously, I would have kept that bottled up inside and it would have festered like a poison. Yep. And that going back to my value of honesty, you know, it all goes back to the values. If I'm living an honest life, I'm able to communicate my truth and lean into the fear, even if it seems scary. Right. Right. Yeah. Because anyone listening is going to find themselves in your story. Is going to find themselves in our conversation? And that's the gift of sharing it. Well, and, and you know what else, Dave, is a lot of times... Actually, I, I, I do keynote speeches, and, and this is a big piece of, of a keynote that I do. When I share my story, a lot of times people want to reciprocate. They'll want to share something about themselves. 
um, like a teeter-totter. You know, if two people are on a, on, a, on a seesaw together, in order for the seesaw to work, one person has to push off from the ground and the other person has to allow themselves to go up into the air and vice versa. In order for the seesaw to go back and forth, one person has to provide energy and the other person has to receive it. And when I tell people my story, it's not always about alcoholism. Like sometimes people go, oh gosh, like I, I, I'm drinking too much too. Can we talk? But you know, other times it'll be about a completely different fear, a completely different element of their life that has no context to my story, but just because I've shared something honest, they want to do the same. And we build trust, right? The relationship is stronger as a result. Well, I can't help but go back to that leadership conversation we had. And, and, you know, if you're listening and you're wondering how to connect with your team and um, build, build some trust and, and get into more gray area, that's a heck of a great place to start. What's something you could share about yourself that will become by virtue of sharing it, an invitation for someone to reciprocate. And then that's right. And then from there, you know, start to build, um, build something solid and, and, and ultimately really powerful because you have that shared, that shared ground that you can now walk on. That's right. And, you know, you read any number of, of books on the topic of leadership. Um, you know, the leadership, the leadership challenge, honesty actually is, is a huge pivotal element of, of Kuzis and Posner's research. Uh, I talked about Boyd Clark and Ron Crossland earlier. They, they wrote a book called The Leader's Voice. Part of their um, thesis is that leaders should have that personal story to share to invite others to be their authentic selves. Yep. You know, we could go on and on. Yep. That's what's getting normalized now. You know, the era of leadership models having been inherited out of mid-century industrialism and manufacturing uh, slash mm. war <laughs> where mm. you know mm. it was just you do because you 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 you're you're there and, and you just got to fulfill your responsibilities it doesn't work like that anymore I mean it's just not going to work like that anymore there's too no. much expectation of communication and connection and that happens by storytelling like we're doing. It happens by honesty and openness. And we got to figure out, and I think it's just time, we got to figure out how to help people trust that you're not giving away authority. You're increasing mm. it. <laughs> yeah. You're strengthening your authority by by being someone who can be known as well as incredibly competent at this set of skills. Well, well said. And I, you know, going back to one of your, your earlier questions, you asked, what is the barrier to, you know, leaders sharing that authenticity? I think we, and maybe, I don't know if men have the market on this, but um, uh, I know a lot of men that do feel like they have to have the answers to everything. If we're sharing a fault or if we're sharing something that we've done wrong or a mistake, uh, we're demonstrating ourselves as fallible yes. and that maybe we don't have all the answers and maybe there is a fear that we're, we're not going to be as credible of a leader if people see us as a human being who needs help. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, another, another book, the hero's journey. If, if you, if you, if you look at the hero's journey and you understand that the best heroes are fallible human beings that learn from their mistakes they're more relatable. You want to follow them. They're they're a hero because they're real, not because they're untouchable. Yeah. 
Tim, 10 years is a just a, a, a really powerful accomplishment, it seems to me. 10 years of sobriety and clearly Thanks. the perspective you've gained and the way you've applied that perspective to the different facets of your life. What does the coming 10 years hold for you as you think about the evolution of your perspective and, and the ways that you'd like to, to share it? Yeah, thanks for that. I, I think the pandemic for me, like a lot of people, has given me the chance to really hold a mirror in front of my face, to, to ask questions about who I am and what I want to be and, and legacy, you know, that big word. And I do think uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a, a, a more predictable um, way to describe what I'm communicating as a midlife crisis that I've gotten to this point where, okay, I've, I've fallen down, I've gotten back up, things are pretty good. And I've been coasting for a little while, just sort of getting back on track. And maybe, you know, you, you've, you've benched, you've time bound, um, 10 years, I'd say probably for the first five to seven years into sobriety, that was about just getting back on track and finding myself and repairing relationships. The past five years have been more about like building up the strength again, building up the credibility and professional achievements. Lately, it hasn't really been as much of a challenge. I haven't been challenging myself and it's become a little stagnant, which is, which is why um, I'm leaning into this, this story a little bit more. Um, I talked about the keynote speaking a little earlier. I've actually just recently started a, a new side hustle to explore the possibility of how my story could impact others and touch lives. Uh, likewise, I've, I've recently joined a board. Uh, I'm the chairman of a local YMCA chapter and that's about giving back to the community rather than being a consumer of the community, which I've been most of my life. I think, you know, again, going back to the word legacy, the next 10 years, I think will be a, a little bit more about the legacy as opposed to self or personal gain. Well, I, that's so great. I, I'm, it's resonating for a couple of reasons, but thematically in our conversation, there's a thread here. Um, you started talking about the big brands you were a part of, and there was something about that that was important to you. And now your career mm. is progressing. You're finding maybe it's less about that and more about the kind of work you get to do or where and the people and so on. And in a similar way, it seems like you're talking about, I think of this as like, I'm my, you know, my, my line of sight is starting to go from what's out there for me, what's possible, what's out there for me to coming down to more what's local, what's right in front of me, where, yes. where I could plug in and, 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 and actually have the impact I dream about. <laughs> it's yes. right here. I don't have to go searching for it. It's right here. So that's yes. what's going on for me as you share that. Well, and, and to high five that thought, what, what you triggered for me is the realization of what what's really important, what really matters. I'll give you an example from this, this actually before the pandemic, so it was two summers ago now. Um, again, YC, YMCA connection. I live in Seattle, Washington, and there's uh, a suburb of Seattle called Kenmore. And at the Kenmore City Hall, each week in the summertime, 
the YMCA provides lunches, free meals to children that would otherwise go hungry. And they've, they've turned it into this social event where the kids come, there's actually a bookmobile that comes and gives out a book to each kid and they get a lunch and they, they have lots of um, outdoor activities for these kids to, to do. And whenever I've taken a break from my workday, when I'm feeling like I'm doing something important at work, and I go down and I, I spend a few minutes with these kids that literally would not have anything to eat unless the YMCA was providing them a meal. And I see the joy and I see the, the life, that, that, the energy that exists in that moment. It, it, it transcends, right? It, it, it becomes so much more important than anything I was doing the hour previous at work. And that, that has been a big learning for me, like right. just those little moments. And, and that's just one little community center, right? One little moment in one little city for 10 kids, and but it's everything. That, I was just going to say that moment is everything. Yeah. Every moment, you know, I don't want to get too like poet, poetic, philosophical, but, but every moment, every interaction, every day actually contains everything. <laughs> yes. It's all there, you know? It, and, it, and when I, and when I reflect like going back to that day, as my head hits the pillow, do you think I'm thinking about what I did at work that day? Exactly. No way. I'm thinking about those kids. And that's like to your question earlier, like what's the next 10 years about? Maybe it's more finding more days like that. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It sounds like an invitation uh, certainly lands with me as a reminder and an invitation to just keep working towards getting outside of myself. Hmm. Just yeah. Right. Get outside of my story, get outside of my needs, get outside of my control, get us, you know, like, yeah. You know, yeah. Show and up, show up to other, other, other things. Cause guess what? Other things are happening. <laughs> yep. That's right. That's right. You know, and, and I bet, if you were to join me at that event and we were to walk into that room, you know, you were talking about the masks that we wear, mm-hmm. or at least that's, that's what I heard. You didn't use that phrase, but that's the, that's a term often that I use. That's a good way to describe it. You, you, you're probably not wearing a mask as you walk into that room, as opposed to the zoom call that you're on at work where you might be. And, you know, again, that, that opportunity to be authentic and to be, you know, naked and, and surrender just to be in that moment with those kids. Uh, it's not about you. It's about them. And that's what matters. Yeah. I think, by the way, it could be that way at work too. If we, if we chose for it to be that way, absolutely. it, it, it can, it, that, that environment can thrive if you choose uh, to create it. No, absolutely. But again, again, let's go back. I don't think at an individual level, there's a, there's, you can get to that kind of comfort with being yourself, with pulling that mask away. If you don't have clear values, if you don't have a clear sense of self, what you're there to do, what you're there not to do, mm-hmm. how you're willing to be treated, how you're not right. All that comes from doing uh, the work of understanding who we are and what we're made for. Right. And, yep. and, and that's, that's my, I mean, I know you've, I know you've um, been in therapy relationship as part of your yep. development and learning, and I certainly have. And yep. any chance I get to make a plug for 
coaching, therapy, counseling, mentorship that's rigorous and meaningful, anything, especially for men that gets us outside of ourselves and into a deeper awareness of who we are, increases profoundly the chance of us showing up as more human to the people who might need us to be, our family, yeah. co-workers, et cetera. So maybe, say, maybe just say a word or two about your own experience of kind of doing that work. Self-work is the cornerstone. If you were to ask me, what is it, what is it to be a man today? It, th- my answer would start with that. What is masculinity today? Sel- self-work, self-awareness. And it, all, the, all the tools you just mentioned, therapy, reading, the conversations. For me, it's, it's AA. By the way, a 12-step program is not unlike um, you know, therapy or, or group therapy in a lot of ways. Uh, if you go back to the origins, you'll know this as a fellow practitioner in the leadership space, but T groups that that started at all are essentially uh, a 12-step program, just you know, packaged in a different form. Weight Watchers is the exact same thing. And it 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 essentially, you know, the steps are, I'm, I won't go through all 12 for AA, but I'll give you one of my favorites. There's a step four is called to create a fearless and moral inventory, which essentially means writing down all the crap you've done, all the mistakes you've made, all the people you've hurt, and trying to figure out the themes of of those moments. And it comes down to classic archetype fears, fear of not being good enough, fear of not being liked, fear of not having enough. And once we're able to, again, we we'll go back to surrender. Once you're able to surrender the need uh, or, or once you're able to surrender the control that fear has over you, um, you can start to be the best version of yourself. And, and that's all self-work to, to your question. Therapy, AA conversations. By the way, you, you didn't ask me this, but um, did I ever tell you I started a group called Man Club several years ago? No, you didn't. That sounds like, <laughs> that sounds like it's relevant. It's it's a men's group. Uh, it is it is non-religious in affiliation, but um, and I'm sad to say that the pandemic really uh, put a, a cur- threw us a curveball. We haven't been meeting regularly, but essentially it was just a group of my my guy buddies and any any guy that wanted to come uh, to talk about our life experience, whether it was to be a husband, a father, a a worker, um, a friend, and. Uh, Holy cow! Did I learn a lot from those those guys? And that was self that was self work as well. Not not for nothing. Um, you wouldn't believe how difficult it is to find a place for a group of men to meet after hours that isn't a bar or right. a church. Think about that. I believe like, it. How how much has society pigeonholed us that for a group of guys to get together, we can't find space that isn't a church or a bar? I want to um, I want to invite you to to answer a set of five questions that I ask of mm. each of my guests on the podcast as a way okay. to wrap up our time. Is this a speed round? Yeah, no, it, you don't have to think of it that way. In fact, it's I've always found it really interesting to hear you elaborate on on your uh, responses and why you choose to respond the way you do. So feel free to do that. Okay. So so Tim, what is a book or a movie that has changed you? The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck is a book that has changed me. It, it is a book. Um, so Scott Peck is a, a fairly well-known psychologist. When I read the book, and I suspect this is probably true of many people, I felt like he was writing it for me. I, I felt like he was literally like saying, this book is Tim Russell's biography. 
it, it wrote a lot or, or it, it, it focused a lot on the topics we've already hovered on today and much, much more. Um, fears, needs, authenticity, not wearing a mask, surrendering. Great, great, great book. Movie-wise, you know, the, my favorite all-time movie uh, is the movie The Natural with Robert Redford. And uh, anyone that's seen the movie, it's kind of a slow burn. It's not action-packed, but anyone that's seen it um, knows that it's a story of of a bright young baseball star that is thrown a, a curveball. No pun intended. Um, he he has a bad life experience, and he his life's purpose to become a professional baseball player um, changes, and he goes down a different path for a while, but then he returns to it. And I relate to that movie. I, I loved the movie even before relating to it on an individual level. Um, it's a great story. Uh, now I love it even more mm. because it's um, it's familiar. Do you think? Do you think there's something that we're all meant to do? That we're all meant for? Is that me asking you if you believe in destiny? As opposed to like choosing it? Yeah, making it ourselves. Yeah, I think based on the, what I've learned, you know, again, uh, surrendering control uh, about surrendering control that my life probably does have a destiny. Um, but for me, I choose to let it unfold as opposed to trying to control its outcome. Um, while I am taking proactive steps to, to do things that I love and to celebrate my gifts, uh, I don't know that I'm trying to design an outcome for myself. Okay. Um, nevertheless, I, I feel like the outcome that happens for me is what's meant to be. So I guess I guess the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that that wasn't my that, that wasn't one of the five, but I felt led to ask it anyway. Yeah. Uh, what Tim? What's a quality you wish you had more of? Detail orientation. <laughs> I, I am I'm a big picture thinker. I, I like to brush with really broad strokes. Um, I choose to surround myself with the detail-oriented types because they pick up where I leave off. Uh, I am not the type of guy that finds the the punctuation errors in in, in grammar. I am not the type of guy that finds the clerical error in a spreadsheet. Uh, I wish I had more of that. Got it. What's a quality you wish you had less of? Verboseness. <laughs> I have no, I have no talent for brevity. It takes me about ten words to say what I probably could say in five. I find that I, I have to think my way into things, or excuse me, I don't think my way into things. I speak my way into my thinking. I, <laughs> the verbal yes. processing is really important. Maybe we share that. Yes, I, I have. I feel like I've gotten better at that. I. I pride myself in not being the first to speak in a meeting these days. Mm-hmm. I used to be the opposite. I used to be the person first to speak and with the most to say. What advice would you give your younger self? It, it would be to um, go, to tell myself, sur- surrender. Surrender. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that I would have lived a a life more driven by serenity, not for nothing. The serenity prayer is a huge mantra for me. 
Uh, and if you're not familiar with it, it's God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. As a younger man, I definitely was not wise. I, I was not. I did not have the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. Still don't, <laughs> but maybe a little better. <laughs> okay. One more. What yep. is something? What is something you're looking forward to? Oh gosh, I you know it's pandemic related. How can it not be? I am an extrovert that draws energy from people. I just can't wait to get out and be with huge crowds of people. <laughs> I can't wait to go to uh, a Seattle Sounders soccer game. I can't wait to go to Disneyland. Whatever it is, I mean, I'll wait in long lines. I don't care what it is. I just want in busy crowded restaurants. I just want to be with people and literally absorb their energy. Yeah. I want to hug people. I mean, yes. Oh, like I'm a hugger and and (laughs) this, this whole like bumping elbows with somebody when you meet them, it's just not working for me. I I want to give them a big, and I'm going to, I'm going to hold on tight. Like Dave, like just brace yourself. When when we see each other next, you're going to get an extra couple of awkward, awkward moments of hug. Thank you, Tim Russell, for joining me on Becoming Better Men. I'm your host, David Barry. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple or Spotify, and please tell a friend what we're up to as well. You can learn more about Municipal at municipal.com and follow us at Municipal on all social channels. You can find me at David Is Outside on Instagram, and you can reach me directly at David at municipal.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with the final episode of season one of Becoming Better Men.